Well, do please turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians 8. It's the uh, end of our short series looking through 2 Corinthians, uh, or at least this little section of it, and um, particularly um, uh, designed to finish today as we head towards the uh, gift day for next week. The uh, church leadership asked me to preach all day today uh, on giving so that we'd be prepared um, to know how to give next week. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, page 1162 is the church Bible number. Jesus said it's more blessed to give than to receive. According to Jesus, it's as we give that we enjoy life more. But of course we don't actually believe that. Because the world has told us that it's so much better to get than to give. Just listen to the words of Peter Russell. In our addiction to materialism, we are trying to make ourselves feel better. But any happiness we get is usually only temporary. As soon as one high wears off, we go in search for another fix. We try harder and harder to get the world to give us what we want. We buy more clothes, go to more parties, eat more food, try to make more money. Or we give up on these and try different things. Take up squash, buy a video camera, decide to move house or look for new friends. Yet true peace of mind remains as elusive as ever. They're telling words, aren't they? We have believed the lie that things will make us happy. And so our culture is driven and gripped by materialism. Along with soccer and sex and status, materialism is one of our great idols. And because money is the currency of materialism, we have bowed at the altar of wealth. Money has been given godlike status in our society, replacing the one true God, the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit. Have you noticed that? In place of the Father, we trust in money as our creator. So when someone has made a fortune, what do we say? We, we call him a self-made man. Money has made him what he is today. Money is the creator, you see, makes us what we are. And rather than turn to the sun, we trust in money as our saviour. We live as if money can rescue us from any problem and get us out of any sticky situation. As long as we've got a little bit put by for a rainy day, we'll be okay, won't we? It's our saviour. And when we remember that the Bible calls the Holy Spirit the comforter, we can see how we push the Holy Spirit aside and made money our comforter. So we find ourselves going for a little retail therapy, uh, comfort shopping at Meadow Hall. Yes, I went there for the first time last Friday and I don't intend going there for another 27 years. <laughs> we love our comfort shopping and soothing ourselves by looking at our healthy bank balance. Money has replaced the Trinity. And the God of materialism is thriving in Britain today. You don't need me to tell you that. But Christian, we too are not immune from it. We are just as influenced by our society. As we've seen over these last weeks, the church in Corinth was certainly influenced by the culture that it lived in. A culture that was remarkably similar to ours. First century Corinth was cosmopolitan and a wealthy city which, like 21st century Britain, idolised sex and money and success and strength. And as a result, the church had been seduced by those things too. We've seen that over these last weeks. Indeed, as we've seen over these last weeks through this short series in 2 Corinthians, the church in Corinth had been infiltrated by false teachers who were also pushing that kind of agenda. 
the group of people Paul sarcastically calls super apostles. Do you remember? Oh, look, I know you're in chapter 8, but before we start there, just um, flip over to chapter 11 and look what Paul says of these false teachers in chapter 11 and verse 7. I've never really seen this uh, like this until I began to think of it this, uh, this week. Chapter 11, verse 7. See what Paul says? He's exposing the false teachers in the church in Corinth. And he says, Was it a sin for me to lower myself in order to elevate you by preaching the gospel of God to you free of charge? In defending his own ministry and contrasting himself with these super apostles, Paul had clearly been vilified for not charging for preaching. You can hear the accusation from the false apostles that Paul's preaching couldn't be up to much if he gives it away for free. We don't get anything for free, not in this life. And so the point is obvious. The super apostles were charging for their preaching. It's a very nice little earner for them. They were, after all, great orators. Do you remember we saw that a few weeks in chapter 11, verse 6? They were trained speakers. Now, clearly, they served God for money. Do you see how the culture had influenced the church? These were the leaders of the the church in Corinth. Serving God made them rich. They were your modern-day American televangelists. Wealthy personalities driving around in new Mercedes, wearing Armani suits. And it's not unreasonable to to suggest that these false teachers in Corinth were teaching what we might call a prosperity gospel. Serve God, give to God, and he'll make you rich. And of course they held themselves up as an example of how prosperous you can become in serving God. Desperately, do you see, the church, the, the culture had influenced the church. It's always supposed to be the other way around. We're supposed to influence the culture, but it always comes the other way around too. And it's happened to us the so-called prosperity gospel, is seeping its way into the church in Britain. It says, give to God and we promise you that you'll receive material blessing from God for you to enjoy. Their selling technique is quite something. They say, if you don't get a good return on your investment, then we'll release you from your obligation to give. That's going on in the churches in Britain today. They treat God like a heavenly building society or stock exchange, offering a very competitive return on your investment. It's alive and kicking in the church in Britain today. And of course it appeals to our society. It's the language of our culture. Because we believe that materialism is the way to happiness. While the church in Corinth needed to be freed from this insidious teaching that the false teachers have brought to it, And because 21st century Britain is so similar, the chances are that we too need to hear how to be liberated from this idol of materialism, to smash it down and to free ourselves from its shackles. And of course, there is no better way of dealing with the idol of materialism than to be giving our money away. Now that's what Paul is going to be teaching in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Finally, we get to our chapter tonight. As we come to chapter 8 of 2 Corinthians, we need to know that Paul was organising a collection for the church in Jerusalem. While he was on his missionary journeys, he collected money from many churches to support the Jerusalem famine appeal. As you read through the different letters, you'll see it keeps coming up. Now, the Christians in Corinth had initially responded well to that appeal. But now, one year on, their enthusiasm for giving had waned. Look at chapter 8, verse 10. 
Paul says, here is my advice about what is best for you in this matter. Last year, you were the first not only to give, but also to have the desire to do so. Now finish the work so that your eager willingness to do it may be matched by your completion of it according to your means. See, in the area of giving, they'd started so well, but now, well, now their generosity had dried up. They didn't like putting their hand in their pocket quite so much now. And so Paul is urging them to give and not to hoard, to return to being generous givers and balk against the insidious teaching they'd received from the the false teachers among them. And we see in verses 1 to 7 that being able to give is itself a gift of God. Let's look again at verse 1 that we had read for us earlier. Chapter 8, verse 1. Now, brothers, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. We want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. In a moment, we'll see that Paul points to the Christians in Macedonia as an example of Christian giving. But first, he makes the point that the ability and desire to give financially is something that God gives to us. He gives us the desire to give financially. That's verse 1. The grace that God has given. Sacrificial financial giving is something that God enables us to do. I think of a materialistically minded young guy, mortgaged up to his neck, on a very tight budget. Most months he wondered how he would make ends meet. He was always uh, just desperate, that, uh, desperately hoping that nothing would go wrong with the car or the house because he knew that if he was faced with any big bills, he'd be scuppered. He simply didn't have any more money to pay these things with. And then he heard the gospel. He met Jesus. And very quickly, without anybody telling him, he, knew that he, 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 should be, he just knew that he should be giving. And amazingly, as a young Christian, he started to give at a level he thought he couldn't, he couldn't really afford. And astonishingly, at the end of every month, he found the books balanced. God did that. Not just the balancing of the books, but God put the desire in that young man's heart to give. Because he had no money to give, really. So he thought. Verse 1, God gives people and churches the grace to give. But uh, don't use that as an excuse not to give. Uh, You know that line, God hasn't given me that spiritual gift. The gift of giving. Now look what Paul says in verse 7. Just as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness and in your love for us, see that you also excel in this same phrase, grace of giving. And this time in verse 7, Paul says, make sure that you do it well, that you excel in it. He doesn't say, wait until God gives you this grace, but make every effort to be good at it. Well, how can we do that? How, how can we be about this grace of giving? Well, four things. Firstly, look to others, says Paul, verse 1. Well, verses 1 to 7. Verse 1. And now, brothers, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. Now, you see, to urge the Corinthians to give, Paul points to the Macedonian Christians. It's true, isn't it? It's certainly true for me that we can all be stimulated to greater generosity by hearing about the generosity of others. I think of a a good friend of mine uh, working for a charity called Containers of Hope, uh, a a charity that was set up some years ago giving aid to Christians in Burundi and Rwanda. 
When my friend first started working for the charity, he was sent on a a sort of fact-finding mission. And I still remember as he returned from his trip, from his first trip to Africa, he was overwhelmed by the generosity of the Christians there. Christians who had virtually nothing. He he told me uh, in quite detail of one African family and how they'd invited him in for a meal, uh, just into this little hut that they had. They had nothing in the hut and they wanted to feed him. And not only did they feed him with what was a banquet for them, but at the end of the meal, as he was leaving, they gave him two eggs and he didn't quite understand the significance of it until the Christian that he was with told him that those two eggs were all that the family had. It was all they had left. Wanted to give them to my friend, who had so much. When I heard that story, I thought to myself, I should be like that. I should be like that. Well, here was wealthy Corinth, much better off financially than the churches in Macedonia. And Paul held up the Macedonians as examples to the Corinthians. Aren't we in something of a Corinthian situation here in Forward? It will do us no harm to look at others less well off than ourselves in other parts of the world, maybe just in other parts of the city, and be challenged by their giving. See, the church in Macedonia had learned an amazing lesson about giving. And it was so the opposite of all that the culture told Corinth and all that the culture tells us. See verse 2? This is an astonishing verse. Out of the most severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. Isn't that an astonishing verse? This verse speaks of severe trial and overwhelming joy, extreme poverty and rich generosity, all in the same sentence. How can you put those things together? Our world tells us that those things are mutually exclusive. You can't possibly be happy in severe trials. Our world will tell us that it's madness to be rich in generosity in the midst of extreme poverty. But look at the African churches. Just look at them. They are poor yet generous. They suffer the most severe trials and yet African Christians are so full of joy. One of the things my friend told me when he came back from his trip to Africa. He said, they have nothing, yet their faces shine. We have everything and yet we are so miserable. As my brother used to regularly remind me when we were teenagers, money doesn't make you happy. (coughs) Problem was, David would go on to say, money doesn't make you happy, but at least you can be unhappy in comfort. Well, thanks very much, my brother. Oh, look, we've heard it so many times before, but we seem to refuse to believe it. Money doesn't make us happy, but the world tells us it does. When will we stop believing that lie? Until we do, we will never be free to give as the Macedonians gave. And their giving really was spectacular. Verse 3, do you see it there? They gave beyond what could reasonably be expected. See, the way they gave simply doesn't make economic sense. It's not the advice you'll get from the bank manager. He'll say, save some up for a rainy day. Calling your financial advisor, they will tell you, you need something to fall back on. Money is our security after all. But the Macedonians didn't listen to that advice. They gave a bit more than they could afford. No, it doesn't make economic sense, but it does make spiritual sense. It flowed out of the grace of God. You see, they demonstrated the irrational extravagance of a lover, not the calculated thriftiness of a financial advisor. 
You ever been in love? You don't think about how much it's going to cost, do you? If you do, you're not in love. They were in love with their God, the God who'd given them the grace to give, the God whose grace had given them so much in the first place. That's why they were so joyful, even in the most severe trials, verse 2. That's why their giving was sacrificial, verse 3. Testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability. And that is why no one had to force them to give. Again, verse 3, end of verse 3, entirely on their own. See, there was no arm twisting, no spiritual manipulation, no hype in the services. None of that is needed when the grace of God has captivated your heart. They were in love with Jesus. And their giving was simply an expression of their love for him. Don't you just love verse 4? I I think it's such a great verse. Verse 4, it's the end of verse 3, entirely on their own. They urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service of the saints. Paul tells us these givers were beggars. Do you see the irony? They begged, not for money, but to be able to give money. Christian, you're unlikely to hear anybody say this again as a preacher. Christian, be a beggar. Be a beggar. Plead for the privilege to give more. When you go and see Rachel Field and she says, no, no, you shouldn't give any more, say, no, I want to give some more. That's what they were doing. Please. And what would ever possess someone to live like that in this money-grabbing, self-centred world that we live in? Simply the gospel. The gospel. The gospel had completely captivated the Macedonian Christians. Verse 5. And they did not do as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us in keeping with God's will. Do you see, it's not about money. When God touches a life, he touches it all. As one wag said, when the Lord turns a man upside down, the money falls out of his pocket. The Macedonians gave themselves to Jesus. Financial giving was just an extension of that. And look, if you're just looking in this evening, checking out what we believe, we're so thrilled that you've come this evening, but please be sure we don't want your money. We want you to know this God. This God who is generous beyond anyone in the universe. When you get to know this God, you will meet the most generous person who exists. That's what the Macedonians knew. That's why they gave out of thankfulness to this God who had given them so much. Now do you see, when we've got this right, we don't need to make a big heavy appeal for cash. Indeed, beware of the church that does. Note the New Testament way. Paul told them there was a need and they gave. That's it. And that's all he had to do because earlier Paul had taught them the gospel and the gospel had so transformed their lives that they wanted to give. That's verse 5. They did not do as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord. That's real Christian giving. We need to ask ourselves how spiritual is our giving? They gave themselves. Their financial giving flowed out of that. Christian giving is not an act of charity, not in the humanist way. It's an act of worship. That's why we include it in in our meetings on Sundays. And so, says Paul, be like the Macedonians. See verse 6, we urge Titus, since he'd earlier made a beginning, to bring also to completion this act of grace on your part, 
But just as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness and in your love for us, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. Verse 7 is a great verse. Corinthians, you excel in everything. You're a great church. Be sure you excel in giving. In your desire to be A star, top of the league, in evangelism and preaching and doctrinal purity, don't overlook this other vital aspect of Christian living, giving. What would Paul say to us? How would he write verse 7? I don't know. He might say, you're a rubbish church. I guess he'd say something like this. He might well say, forward church, you excel in a number of areas. Good, good. Now see to it that you excel in giving too. Be known for being generous. See, if we have a reputation for being a Bible church, and I don't know whether we do, but if we do, for preaching, for evangelism, for sending out missionaries, great, that's great. But let's also gain a reputation for being generous. Can we do that? People look all over from Sheffield and they say, ah, forward church. Oh yeah, that's the church that gives. They give. The grace of giving. Look to others. Secondly, look to Christ. Verses 8 and 9. See verse 8, I'm not commanding you. It's abundantly clear. There's no forceful, heavy-handed manipulation from Paul. I'm not commanding you but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. See, it's all about love for Paul and testing our love. He says, to test your love, I'm going to compare it with the earnestness of others. Not now the Macedonians, but now, he says, look at Christ, verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. Giving is a great thermometer. It takes our spiritual temperature. See, because we love money so much, when it comes to giving, we see how much we love Jesus as we give away the one thing that we love so much. See what's going on in verse 9. Paul says, I I want Christmas giving and Easter giving. Uh, Not Father Christmas and Easter eggs, but real Christmas giving and Easter giving. At Christmas, God became a man. Jesus gave up riches and and the splendour of heaven, the like of which we have never seen. Verse 9, he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor, leaving the splendour of heaven to live among sinful human beings like you and me. And he did it, verse 9, so that through his poverty we might become rich. Easter giving, dying on the cross so that we might have the wealth of salvation, forgiveness, relationship with God, eternity with Jesus, such riches that he's now given to us. Paul says, look at Christ. Look at the cross. That is what motivates us to give. Not histrionics from the pulpit. Not tugging of the heartstrings. Not arm twisting. Not endlessly singing emotive songs. Because, friends, if the cross does not motivate us to give, then nothing will. And if anything else does, it won't be Christian giving anyway. Christian, are you stingy? Mean, tight-fisted, penny-pinching Christians have taken their eyes off the cross. At the cross, we see sacrificial giving. Jesus Christ giving himself. There is no greater sacrifice in the history of the universe So how sacrificial is our giving? Do we miss what we give? 
Does our giving mean that we can't have what we want? If not, it's hardly Christian giving. Verse 9, Christian, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul expects that to affect our wallets and our purses, our bank balances and our spending. Let's practice being generous people then, all the time. Not just over gift day, but all the time. Let's be the first to get the drinks in, pick up the tab. That will be good practice. If we're getting used to just giving money away, well then we'll be able to give it away to gospel work a lot easier, won't we? You know, after he was converted, John Wesley quickly discovered that he could live on £28 a year. Oh yeah, it was a long time ago, but still, £28 a year. And so, as his salary grew larger, he didn't increase his standard of, of living, he increased his standard of giving. And during his lifetime, he gave away thousands of pounds from the sale of his books. We could do that. Well, not from the sale of our books, you know, but we could work out how much it actually costs and when we get an increase, just give more. The materialistic culture we live in is so hard to fight against. The very best way to overcome it is to give away what we have. And don't put it off. Strike while the iron's hot. See verses 10 and 11. Here is my advice about what is best for you in this matter. Last year you were the first not only to give but also to have the desire to do so. Now finish the work so that your eager willingness to do it may be matched by your completion of it according to your means. Look to others, look to Christ, look to act thirdly. See, the Christians had been eager to give when Paul first made his Jerusalem famine appeal. But somewhere along the line they'd stopped giving. That does happen so easy. It certainly happens to me, doesn't it? When I was preaching uh, from this pulpit just about six weeks ago, I was challenged myself about something I should do, about some particular financial giving I should give. And you know, I still haven't done it. And this week I've been determined I've got to go and give that money that I made a decision in this pulpit to make. Well, I'll make sure that I've done it by this time next week. It is so easy, isn't it, for there to be a time lag between the heart saying let's give and the cheque being written. Have you found that? For the, Christian, for the Corinthians, a whole year had passed, verse 10. But don't be fooled. That's not just down to administrative incompetence. It is down to our reluctance to smash this idol of materialism that has so gripped our heart. And putting it off only makes it harder. What Paul is saying in verses 10 and 11. Now come on, get on with it. Don't put it off any longer. Look to others, look to Christ, look to act and very briefly look at us. Look, that is, at the leaders here, here at uh, Christ Church Forward. Not uh, primarily as an example of giving, although we should be, but as people who will be very careful with the money that is given. You see, with Paul, verse 20, we want to avoid any criticism of the way we administer this liberal gift. For we are taking pains to do what is right, not only in the eyes of the Lord, but also in the eyes of men. That will be something we promise you as you give. Be assured, we'll be very careful with money given. Be sure, it will be given to the Lord's work. We will do everything we can not to waste it, not to misuse it. Jesus said, it's more blessed to give than to receive. In our addiction to materialism, we are trying to make ourselves feel better. 
In our culture, money has been given godlike status, replacing the one true God. Christian, be a beggar, begging for the privilege to give. Christian, be known for being generous. Giving is a great spiritual thermometer. Do you see, our world, like that of first century Corinth, idolised two things, sex and money. We are unbelievably generous with our bodies and unbelievably stingy with our money. As Christians, we should be unbelievably stingy with our bodies, except, of course, with our spouses, and unbelievably generous with our money. 4, verse 9, You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. Let's pray.